Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Adam Fair. Adam is an advocate of mental health, eating disorders, neurodivergence, stomas and equality. Adam joins us today to discuss his experience of an eating disorder and the consequences that have occurred due to improper treatment. Hello Adam. Hi, you all right? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Good, good. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because I came to a talk that you did Gosh, that must have been like, was it last summer? I think so, yeah. It was a long feels time ago. Like a, now. Yeah, it feels like a long time ago. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to to hear what you've got to say again. Um, so I guess if we start with kind of your experience, um, I, I want to talk to you a lot about kind of the experience that you had in terms of the treatment, but I guess if we'll start with kind of the eating disorder experience. Yeah, and I'll go I'll go through it relatively briefly because it's a 14-year story, I don't want to drag it on too long. Um, but yeah, my eating disorder developed when I was about 11 years old when I made the transition between primary and secondary school. Sort of, you know, looking back now, I know it was due to sort of change and being neurodivergent as well. That sort of change really did affect me in a lot of ways that I didn't understand at the time, maybe. So I went to sort of maladaptive mild, coping mechanisms, if you like, and that was with me, it was food. Um, it was never due, really down to sort of I wanted to lose weight or I wanted to be a certain weight or anything like that. Obviously, those thoughts came in with the restriction that I was undergoing, but that's sort of a secondary rather than the primary, if that makes sense. Um, I very quickly became quite unwell. My parents noticed straight away, took me you know, straight to the doctors and everything. They did everything they could to try and get me help. The first GP just said, you've got an eating disorder, go home and eat more. And that was sort of the stigma that, was sort of the stigma that stuck for quite a few years. Um, with nothing more than family support, really. Um, I managed to get myself into a place where I got myself okay again. You know, there was about six months where I was really unwell and struggling. And um, I was very reluctant to go to school and everything like that. It was a really difficult time, you know, being sort of alienated and isolated, I guess, mm-hmm. as well. But um, I sort of got myself a bit better again, or better physically, not mentally, but, we, you know, they're not the same thing, but everyone assumes they're the same, so better in inverted commas. Um, and started playing sport again, playing football again, which is what I did before me eating soda and really loved it. And that sort of got me into a pseudo-recovery stage. So I was, because I was playing sport, I had to eat enough to perform, um, and to, to do okay now that didn't mean the mental side was any better and during that time as well I started having really bad bowel issues um, not just related to eating disorder they sort of premeditated that slightly um, but they got worse because of the the eating disorder um, and also between sort of the ages of 11 and 16 I didn't grow or develop at all which now I know is due to not having any hormones left but again that was missed by all the medical profession so uh, um yeah that's that's not ideal either but um when i was 16 i was playing quite high level sport quite high level football and um but i was never really feeling myself enough to get any higher you know i had the potential to 
get higher, but unfortunately I just didn't feel myself enough to, but everyone just thought I was fine because I looked okay. Um, then I broke my foot when I was 17 and had a major relapse because um, by then exercise addiction had sort of crept in as well due to the, the high level sport um, and not being able to exercise cause we having after broke, breaking my foot um, triggered me for the second sort of the, the, a major, major relapse, if you like. Um, this was after, uh, and then, you know, almost quite quickly, I, you know, lost quite a lot of weight again. Um, obviously it's not all about weight, but that did happen. It was a side effect of the disordered behaviors coming back in. Um, my mom took me to, to cams cause I was 17 and within, I think it was, a, it, the appointment lasted five minutes. Um, at the end they just said, oh, you've got bowel problems, not an eating disorder. Cause and that was it. Um, that was sort of probably the last time that they could have helped me before I became severely unwell. Um, and it was missed. Not, you know, my parents did everything they could. Again, they even took me to, I was in Cumbria. They took me down to Manchester to see a specialist um, took me to A&E, packed an overnight bag and everything. So he's not leaving. They did my blood said, oh, they're not too bad. And then told me to leave. So that, that was sort of how it went. Um, and then somehow got through my A-levels um, and got into uni, got the results that I wanted um, in my A-levels um, to the expense of everything else. Um, but then got into uni, went to uni, and within three months I was in hospital. Um, had to leave uni, come back, go back home and go to hospital. But again, not before the GP at uni um, delayed that by a week by saying you need to lose a little bit more weight before we can help you. <laughs> um, so... Oh, God. Yeah, and my brain being my brain actually, you know, did exactly what I had to do. Let's put it that way to to make sure I got help. Um, and that's a horrible, horrible part of eating disorders, but it does happen. And I think it's something that people need to be aware of is that mm. when you're told you're not sick enough for help, it's almost like an encouragement, not a mm. not a relief. Um, so that is it was just horrible. But yeah, I ended up going to A and E, and they were going to discharge me before my dad told them to do my bloods and check my bloods um, turned out I was about probably 12 hours from my organs failing. So, um, but they were going to discharge me for an urgent appointment three days later. So um, I was admitted to a, a general medical hospital, had no psychological, no nutritional support other than eat as much as you want on a hospital menu. That was difficult. Um, you know, when you don't have any food for, 11 hours of the day at hospital, like you don't, it's really difficult. And I was shoved on a horrible medical ward with very unwell elderly patients, which was really, really disconcerting for a vulnerable 18 year old. But yeah. Um, but there, yeah. And then I'll, I'll skip through a little bit after this, cause I know it's gone on for quite a bit, but um, when I was discharged, I was put under the crisis team. Um, and I thought, finally, I'm going to get some help, but yeah, they basically, said that I was a guinea pig because I was a man um, they'd never had a man in the services. They then, the first appointment I was there with my mum, you know, sitting there with my mum and they said something must have gone wrong when you were younger. Um, and that was the last time I trusted them. So I, I did the bare minimum to sort of seem like I was complying with them. And then after six months of them trying to fit me into a category and couldn't, um, I sort of, we came to a mutual agreement that I'd be discharged from their services because they clearly couldn't help me and didn't want to. So, um, yeah, fast forward uh, seven years now. Um, I've lived in Cumbria. I've lived in Birmingham. I've lived in Milton Keynes. I'm moving back to Cumbria soon. Um, 
And every single place I've gone, I've been told I'm not sick enough for treatment. And that's about where we're at. Wow. I don't really know what to say because I'm just, and I think, I mean, firstly, I guess, and, and I don't know whether this sounds awful to say, but if you wanted a 101 of things not to say to somebody with an eating disorder, then I think, you know, you've just given quite a few fantastic examples. Um, I've got a few things, I guess, that I wanted to ask you about kind of, I guess, um, maybe where you know if somebody's listening and thinking you know where could we have intervened I mean I think for us both it's quite obvious at what points there could have been interventions and there should have been interventions um but what would you say to you as like the the big you know obvious things along the way for you that yeah. you really would have liked somebody to see that and recognize that Firstly, I think when I first started struggling, that's a big opportunity missed. You know, the first literally two weeks after I'd started struggling, got a GP appointment, went to the GP and it was like, you've got an eating disorder, go home. That was the prime opportunity to support me, I believe, and to try and, I don't know if it prevented everything, but it was certainly helped stop things a lot sooner and maybe meant I had a more stable recovery for long um quicker and for longer let's put it that way I think kind of what you've said there is, is something that always kind of I guess I never know how we're going to get through that because so obviously they said to you, you have an eating disorder go home like they've literally said the words you have an eating disorder but a lot of the time like we do say you know prevention is kind of the key thing to do and kind of you know getting in there before somebody develops a a chronic eating disorder and then that obviously takes more time to recover from but it's almost as though like I don't know from my perspective when we do talk about prevention it's how we go about that because you know if you said to someone that didn't realize that they had an eating disorder you've got an eating disorder it's like the guard goes up goes up and it's all that denial so I think it's such a difficult thing you know obviously for you it, it sounds like you kind of knew that there was an eating disorder and you wanted help so they did it completely wrong because they just told you to get I, help. I, I'll, I'll be honest I didn't and okay that that tell me did put my guard up for quite a few years mm. actually and you know my parents knew there was something wrong but I didn't want to you know I, I, I had bowel issues as well so I was like it's just my stomach it's the yeah. excuse it's the easy excuse it's the easy way out it's it's really, really funny when you say that because, like you said, I, my my it, mind developing could not have been prevented. I truly believe that nothing would have prevented it because it was a change that I was going through. It was a coping mechanism I found that did it. It wasn't to do with diet culture. It wasn't to do with weight. It wasn't to do with body size, which are a lot of the common or common in society triggers. Right? Um, not everyone's is like that, and I think that's a, a myth as well that needs to be dispelled. In terms of prevention for certain people you, you, i think a lot of eating disorders can be prevented full stop by proactive health positive health messaging um you know ending this incessant focus on weight and body size and numbers and mm. healthy eating and all that sort of thing but i think for me what would have really helped is someone to just sit me down and go look we're, we're concerned about you're eating we're concerned about you physically and emotionally yeah. let's get you some support and let's help you through the struggles that you are going through yeah. so you don't have to go back to those coping mechanisms again mm -hmm. that's how I feel it could have been helped 
Um, it, like I said, it's not about maybe preventing it for everyone. It's about saying, it's, it's about messing in a different way. Don't just go, you've got an eating disorder, eat more. Or for other people, you've got an eating disorder, X, Y, and Z. Let's say, let's just go, look, we've got concerns about whatever. Let's support you and let's try and work out where those concerns are coming from and how we can best support you to, to, to live that better quality of life that you deserve. You know, that sort of thing. That's, that's how I believe it is. It's just about how we get the message across, but then not just leaving someone out in the lurch, actually getting someone that support as well, which is a huge, huge systemic issue. And we know that, but I really believe that schools, workplaces, colleges, et cetera, have a bigger part to play than we believe because they could, especially schools, you know, I was secondary school age, had the, had the schools had knowledge of eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's a way that you can link in a bit better in terms of the earlier intervention, at least mm. in terms of let's not focus on food because food's a symptom of a deeper problem. Often let's focus on integrating that person into the school better. Let's focus on their emotional mm-hmm. well-being and social well-being, And then that will, it doesn't make all the problems suddenly better, but it definitely means that you can then focus on the, the core issues. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, when you were talking there and you said, I don't necessarily think my eating disorder could have been prevented. I, I was kind of thinking along the same lines of you, rather than maybe, you know, preventing the eating disorder, is, is it about educating people on alternative coping mechanisms that are actually beneficial? And maybe, you know, whilst you say for you, maybe diet culture and body size didn't come into things, but giving people the knowledge that they're worth more than kind of what they look like or how they eat or whatever. And then to tie in those two things together to be able to say, you know, at the moment and social media, somebody's self-worth, whatever, seems to all come from the way that they look. And if that's how you're feeling, here's some other things that you can do to cope and manage with that rather than feeling like you have to go on a diet or you then start to develop eating sort of symptoms. I know you said that yours wasn't necessarily about body and shape, but I guess like, I think it would be similar, wouldn't it? And if you're going yeah. through a stressful situation, don't fall back on kind of depriving yourself of food or excessive exercise. Here's other things that you can do. Absolutely. And, you know, I, Mine didn't start with diet culture, but diet culture has become a part of it. And I think it does for most people. Um, it's become a huge barrier to recovery. Um, but I also used to have a lot of internalized fat phobia and weight stigma myself. Um, so I've, you know, and I've, I'm very open about the fact I used to have that. And, you know, I'm very regretful of that, but I think we all did or all do. I think we all still do it some in some ways, shape or form. I don't think anyone can honestly say they have zero unconscious bias or unconscious stigma because i think we all do um and that's just a that's a symptom of our society it's not a fault of anyone but i think that's something we really need to work on yeah definitely i think like you said you know i think if i was being completely honest i would say i would never maybe look at somebody else and judge them for the way that they looked but there must be that internalized fat phobia because i have spent so many years trying to not be that myself um which is, I think, a really difficult thing to admit. But um, I think, you know, being able to admit those sort of things, it kind of unpacking that is kind of that way to recovery and understanding where where the driving forces are. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the second thing that I'd really want to, to change, if I could, is, and it's quite a male-focused one, but I think, you know, I am a man talking about eating disorders, so yeah. is about my hormone levels, you know, 
we talk about women and eating disorders. They have questionnaires, have you lost your periods, you know, et cetera. There's nothing for men. And I think we almost get embarrassed about talking about it, but men, have you lost your morning erections? Have you lost sexual appetite, et cetera? These are really important things for men to acknowledge that if you don't get that, that is a sign of your hormones not doing what they should be doing. And if you're the age I was when I started noticing it properly, like 14, 15, that's a problem. Um, that's a real problem because that could be, it's a problem at any age, right? But especially at a teenager, which is, you know, when a lot of eating, eating sods do develop, it's a real, real issue. And, you know, I didn't develop for so many years, but no medical professional noticed that. Um, so, you know, I went from being the tallest in the year to the shortest in the year. And you look at pictures of me at 11 and 15, and I look exactly the same. And that's not normal for a, a teenager who was growing up. So, you know, I've got long lasting issues and consequences of that, but had that been picked up sooner, I could have at least been put on some medication, which would have stopped that happening um, and allowed me to still develop fully as an adult, which I never fully will now. So I think that's, that's a real, real big one as well Is there's a lot of ingrained stigma within eating sods and a lot of research that it doesn't exist. But I think we really need to raise that awareness that there's, real physical lifelong impacts that can happen especially if eating disorders develop at an early age yeah absolutely I think like you said it's it's so important um and I always like the EDEQ when at the end it says have you missed a period um and I don't know I just always feel it's so narrow-minded um and the fact that we're you know like everyone could say it's 2022 or whatever but the fact that we're like still it's very much a a female focused approach um which is why I think you know you saying about um the different signs that maybe you noticed that is like the first step to reducing the stigma because the more people that say I've experienced this because of my eating disorder other people are then like oh but that's what's happened to me as well. But I, maybe people don't even know that it's related to their eating disorder. They might just think that it's something that's going on. And I think then if you're able to tie the dots, it just helps people so much to get more support. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And so were there any other points, I guess, in the journey? Um, I'd say that that CAMS appointment when I was 17 was the big, big, big one. Because that was sort of the, I was sort of at the beginning of quite a bad relapse like well the worst relapse because it ended up me being hospitalized and you know I'll admit I was in denial still then right I'll admit I was in denial because so I went in and convinced the the cams um therapist that I it was all my bowel problems it was nothing to do with with eating disorder it was all my bowel problems and he just took it hook, line and sinker. And it was just, it without asking any questions as well, it was, you know, a five minute appointment and I came out and I was smiling because, you know, it was, I thought, oh, I haven't got an eating disorder. I'm okay then. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I did deep down, but that's what my brain thought at the time, right? Um, my mum came out worried about me because she knew that I was, I'd gone in there and basically conned them. But how I as 17 year old, quite vulnerable person at the time was able to do that I think that's that's scary actually really scary yeah I would say that that's terrifying was it were you going into an eating disorder service or I mean I guess CAMS is a mental health it it was yeah it was it was the mental health service but it was just an appointment specifically about my eating problems 
So they knew what I was going in about. It wasn't, mm. you, you know, I'd been referred by the GP. It had all been done properly. And it was quite, yeah, scary, scary that that, that happened. Yeah. And it just makes me think as well, why do you think it was out of lack of awareness or do you think it was like, oh, you know, maybe this is one person, if the services are so inundated, this is one person that we potentially don't have to keep seeing because it could be that, you know, they're stringing this line of things it could be instead and maybe we should just take that. I think it was a bit of both really, yeah. Because, you know, I did have really bad bowel problems and, you know, I've now got a stoma because of it. And so, yeah, I did have them and that was there. And I think it was an easy way out. And I hate to say that, mm. but because services are so chronically underfunded, under-resourced, I think almost if you give them an out card, they're going to take it yeah. and run with it because they've got to, because they can't, they, they've got to ration the care. So, and I think because also at that time, I wasn't physically severely unwell um they just ran with anything they could to to sort of go well actually yeah you're okay sort of thing and I don't know I'm I'm smiling and I'm I'm not smiling because it's funny but I get it it's you know an eating disorder I would say is something a lot of health conditions is one thing that when people come they've probably got a lot of denial so to then allow somebody to just kind of continue with that denial and, and, you know, almost confirm that denial. And yeah, you don't have an eating disorder when, you know, so obviously there are, you know, eating issues there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but that's where we are sadly, isn't it? Yeah. And so when you, you spoke about the stoma and your bowel issues, I think you mentioned earlier that they were kind of, were they before the eating disorder or were they caused by the eating disorder? A bit of both. So it's my bowel issues actually started about six months before I started secondary school. I was on holiday in Lanzarote. Okay. I remember the day it started because it was the first time I'd ever felt full after eating. You know, I used to, before that I would eat, just eat, right? I'd have what I wanted when I wanted. I'd nick all my mate's stuff. I'd be in constant, I'd, you know, I was just that sort of kid. Um, but it was the first time I felt full and I think it was, I think now looking back, it was food poisoning, but actually that really messed up my whole gut bacteria and everything. So it caused long-term issues, but then obviously having an eating disorder and chronic restriction of food and et cetera is just makes that issue 10 times worse. So that then went also undiagnosed for about seven or eight years, actually. Wow. Because they were looking in the wrong place. They were looking in my small bowel and my large bowel was the problem. I had chronic constipation. It was a pretty simple issue, really, but they just didn't notice it, um, which caused my bowel to prolapse. Um, firstly, internally, then externally, which is pretty disgusting, but, you know, that is what it is. Um, and, but yeah, they didn't notice it. And I ended up, again, diagnosing myself with it, but... I think it had been happening for three or four years before I actually diagnosed it. So then had two operations to try and fix it, both failed. Um, and basically it was a choice of being incontinent and pain every day for the rest of my life or having a stoma and being in pain a couple of times a week, like agonizing pain. I'm in pain every day, but in terms of agonizing pain, a couple of days a week rather than every day is better than one's better than the other. So that was the choice. It was have a stoma. Um still have massive constipation issues. And again, that causes doctors quite a bit of concern when I tell them that I have to have laxatives and things like that. 
Um, but that's, I, I've, n- I've never, I don't purge at all, okay, in that way, especially. Mm-hmm. I've never abused laxatives. Um, I know people eat disorders do, um, but I don't. Um, I have them because I have to have them. I hate having them. I hate having any medication. But I think that, again, concerns doctors when you when you say, actually, I've got really, really bad chronic constipation, so I've got to do this. They go, oh, we can't give you too much because you're eating disorder. And I say, no, if you don't give me enough, my eating disorder will get worse because I won't be able to eat. Mm. And there's so much misunderstanding about everyone's triggers are different and everyone's issues are different. You know, some someone may not be safe to to do X, but someone may be perfectly safe to do X because it will help prevent Y, for example. Mm. And I think that's a real big misunderstanding that we've got as well. And yeah, it's it's hard to talk about without using potentially triggering language to trigger others. But I think it's a really important conversation we need to have about how everyone manages different comorbidities mm. within their eating disorder. And it's never, there's no one perfect solution. There's never a perfect solution. It is the best of is trying to manage things as best you can you know having chronic bowel issues and a stoma sort of directly contradicts a lot of what eating disorder recovery should be about for some people a lot of people in terms of the way i have to manage my stoma um however it's just about managing it the best way i can to try and live my best quality of life and i think it's the same for everyone they've all we've all got things that are going on and there's no you can't just drop everything else just to focus on one side of things did that make recovery quite difficult because I imagine um, I mean I'm just assuming here but with having a stoma did that does that make your dietary choices quite difficult or limited? so I'm really really lucky with my stoma that I can eat whatever I want I don't have issues because I do things what's called irrigation for my stoma so it basically gets rid of everything and <laughs> helps prevent it getting blocked up there's a lot I'm in a minority of people with stomachs who can eat whatever they want. A lot of people have certain foods that they can't eat. I'm really lucky I don't. Um, but being in pain every day, having severe bloatedness every single day and twice a week being in like chronic, you know, the pain that sort of you feel like you're being stabbed in the stomach, that is really, really difficult when you're feeling like that to keep on eating and keep on. So I, I can't eat to hunger. Um, because some days I'm starving all the time and some days I'm never hungry. Um, some days I don't feel like eating anything. So I have to eat mechanically. I have to eat to the clock, which goes against what a lot of people say in recovery about finding that intuitive eating side of things. I can't do that and never will be able to. And I think that's just as valid as the people who can do it and should be doing it. And that's where it is also with the, the approaches to recovery, particularly anorexia. People go, oh, let's just do all in, go all in, eat as much as you can. I can't do that because it will just cause me so much discomfort that it will be counterintuitive to other issues, which will then be counterintuitive to my own recovery. So I think it's, it, it, it's, it makes it really difficult that there's, there's those sort of, oh, you just do that to recover. No, you don't just do that. You've got to try and manage things the best you can. So yeah, it does, it does become quite messy and quite difficult sometimes, but it get, like I said, you just, you find the way to manage the best you can. Yeah. And I think you've, you've really, said something there that there is no one size fits all for recovery and I think often not just medical professionals but I guess people kind of in maybe the recovery community as well it's always like you know this one thing is the thing that will help everybody um but you know like you said there's other comorbidities that go along with things and even if you don't have other comorbidities and you are able to just focus in on your eating disorder 
I still think that there's going to be different things that will, will get on your way. So yeah, I think it's so important to talk about, you know, the different things, especially when you were saying about kind of, you know, having to use laxatives for your stoma. To most people that would be like, well, like, you know, who would use laxatives, you know, in recovery? But that's something you don't have a choice about. Um, And I think also another thing that kind of has just come into my mind is I think there's, I don't know, I I found this a lot in that, um, and and then like coming from me, somebody will say that they're doing something to me that would be if I did that then that would be like a or like something's going wrong let's say skipping breakfast to me that would be okay I've skipped breakfast I know that there's an intention in there but to somebody else that's just you know they have a a good relationship with food and they just weren't hungry at that time but I think in recovery that's one thing that I found really difficult is recognizing that everyone is different so not everyone just with each disorder everyone in the world um and often there'd be things I'd be like oh that's quite triggering but I'd have to be like no let focus back on yourself because they've got a different relationship than you yeah exactly that and you, you like like you said that you know that if you if you for example skip breakfast it could start a, a routine of doing that which then becomes disorder which then impacts your recovery whereas for someone else like I said it just might be oh I wasn't hungry I wasn't feeling very well and they'll they'll just you know eat to how they feel and that's perfectly healthy for them so it's completely different and we're all different, but there seems to be such a binary view of health in society that it really cloud, it muddies the waters a lot of time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, I guess, kind of brings us on to something else that you mentioned, which was um, about exercise. And I think it's it's something that I am very passionate about because I have struggled with exercise. But equally, I think it's it's becoming more and more of a acceptable issue if that's you could say um so you mentioned about um kind of I think you were saying about maybe a more excessive relationship with exercise but equally you're at quite a high competitive level so I just wondered how you navigated that because it's almost to be at a high level you have to do it a lot Mm. but then it sounds like your sort of intentions were coming from a different place so they didn't start that way. They started as just, I loved playing football and, you know, it was, it, it, it motivated me to recover in a, in, or not recover, but get to a physically stable stage. Mm-hmm. But I think because of the nature that I am, because of the habitual nature I've got as well, um, it became a habit. So I was playing football every day of the week, literally every day of the week, because I was playing for three different teams. So we couldn't not play every week. And the days I wasn't playing, I was doing something to try and improve my performance. Um, and that then became so habitual that when I stopped doing that, because we got went between age groups and certain teams stopped playing and, you know, we moved on, et cetera, et cetera. I carried on doing the exercise, but that exercise for me sort of, let's, the, the easiest way I can describe it is that I had levels of exercise I would class as minimum levels, for example, that were acceptable in my own head. But if I, for one day, did more than that minimum level, that became the new minimum level. Mm. Okay. So that's how it just very slowly creeps up and creeps up and creeps up. Before you know it, you've gone from, and by the way, exercising every day, you shouldn't do anyway. Okay. But even even someone with no exercise issues should be resting. I didn't because that was my nature coming in right but it goes from something that becomes physically 
at least sort of sustainable to something that becomes very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a massive advocate of a healthy relationship with exercise. I want people to, to be active and to find exercise and movement that they love and that they do because they love, they, they are taking care of themselves and their bodies and their minds and being social, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a flip side to it that exercise is not always healthy and more is not always better. Yes, it's true that there are certain people in society who should be doing more exercise, but there are also some people in society who should be doing less or not at all. Mm. And I think we have to see both sides and we have to be nuanced on that. There's also many disabled people who can't exercise, Mm. you know, literally physically, if they exercise, it will kill them. Um, It will be very, very harmful for them. Or they can't because of pain or something like that. And there is so little nuance in the debate at the moment that we, t- it, like you said, if you, if you told someone you were exercising X amount a day, they're going to go, oh, well done. But yeah. actually, what if that is not well done? What if that is, oh, no, that's really going to be damaging for your health? You know, so, and it, it, it and the word addiction is used not flippantly, but honestly, because it can become an addiction. You, I, I've experienced this recently. You know, I've decided that I, for my health, I'm stopping all forms of fast exercise, everything completely, because for me, that is the only way of breaking those cognitions. And it may be the same for other people. Other people might be able to reduce safely, but I, I know I can't because it just creeps up again. As I said, if I do a little bit more, then it becomes the new minimum and then it just goes on and on and on. And I've tried for years to find a healthy balance and I can't. So I've got to stop it. And for how long? I don't know. But that is far more, that is far healthier for me than exercising at all because I know it will end up going to excess. Mm. And I think that's a, it's, it's such a hard one to describe to people because they just immediately go, you're not exercising, that's really unhealthy for you. But actually it's the healthiest thing for me and it's the healthiest thing for some people with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to just think about that. But and, and yeah, when I was doing high level sport, I had the exercise addiction then. Um, there was, I went to my football coach and said, I don't have the energy today to, you know, or some days, like some days I would just not perform on the football pitch. I know now why, because I wasn't Mm. able to sustain that amount of activity all the time, but no one ever questioned it because it was just a site. It was an accepted behavior. You know, it's just accepted. You've exercised every day. That's brilliant. Well done. You No, it's so much more nuanced than that. And I just think we need to change this 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 culture of let's just exercise as much as possible because that's the healthiest thing because it really isn't yeah I think um what what you just kind of said there about um when you're doing your football is there's I think there's people that we're kind of missing in the story um in terms of kind of providing support and coaches is one that um I think is really important and my friend from Maya Minds I think he's doing a lot of work sort of sort of on this um because you know you've just said you asked your coach you know can I not play today because I've got no energy and you know that should be heard but instead um you know maybe not all the time but often that would be seen as you know just get back out on the pitch like you'll be fine or whatever um and I was quite similar and I used to do powerlifting and that very much started as oh, if I power lift, like, you know, I'm going to be lifting heavy weights and I need to eat in order to lift. But then it became, I need to lift in order to eat. Yes. And yeah. You then would be, you know, I'd say to my coach, I wouldn't want to outright say I'm, I'm struggling, but I, you know, and I, maybe I should have done, but there was too much 
shame involved in that um so then you'd be like, oh you know can we kind of you know turn it down this week or everybody no 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 like we, we, you know, we've got this comp coming up or whatever like you you're just tired because you've been lifting so much don't be like okay yeah that's fine um and then I think you know for me personally it's that I then stopped powerlifting because I could recognize that it wasn't healthy but my identity had gone from eating disorder to powerlifting and then there was just nothing so I had to put myself into another sport um and that's I think where you know as we were saying earlier about the like intervening they would have been great opportunities if somebody had been there to sort of be like let's get in and get her before she goes into something else but yeah I just don't think that the awareness is there no it isn't um my ex-football coach actually now is someone I'm working with he's a, a local MP's assistant so I'm now working with him on eating so I just try to help out in the sort of going full circle you like but yeah um it's quite interesting how that happens but yeah it's there's a huge problem in sport with eating disorders we know there is um and that's a, a massive massive issue as well to sort of that we need to sort of work with and overcome yeah I think it's like I was saying earlier though it's so it's really quite a difficult one because the individuals that will engage in sport have the characteristics you know, if, if we're thinking about anorexia that perfectionism striving for better you know very rigid routines um and obviously with this I'm not saying that every single person is yeah. going to develop an eating disorder but kind of those characteristics are almost there already um but I think that kind of Barrier, that kind of crossroad between their competing and putting all of their energy because you know I, I could sit here and say um if sport is getting in the way of your social life or you're eating in order to fuel your sport and like it's kind of being restrictive in that way and stuff like that then I'd be like that's an issue but then if you're a competitive athlete it's it your probably, job yeah yeah it probably is going to get in the way of things so I don't know it's like say it's so nuanced but it's so difficult to unpick it and be like when do we kind of start thinking this is an issue yeah I totally agree uh it's it's really really hard one and I think until you like you said until you unpick it until you get through those stigmas and until you start educating the coaches and the professionals they'll be the ones who'll be able to notice in their their athletes in their you know in the people they're training if they're if they're finding issues, if they're changing a bit, if their habits are changing, if their personality is changing, et cetera. Yeah. It's, it's normally the very, very small things that start with before anything else happens, you know, before even eating behaviors change, their personality might change or their, their routine might become so rigid that they can't, you know, do training at half an hour later one day or something like that. Little things like that. Um, I think they're the, the bits you can start picking up on, but again, it can become, uh, again, it's just, it's a really, really difficult one. There needs to be so much more. I think there needs to be a lot more research into it, firstly, because we just don't have the research yet to sort of, but until then, all we can do is just try our best, I guess, and just try and pick up what we can. Yeah, absolutely. I think the kind of things that you just said there were, were really good tips, I guess, if people are listening and thinking, you know, they feel like things have started to maybe shift. Um, then kind of yeah those routines and stuff I think is a really good idea um and I guess kind of just to finish off today um I know we've already spoken a little bit about male eating disorders and kind of the hormonal changes that you had 
but I kind of just wanted to ask a bit more about were there any other things that you recognize that somebody else might might notice that are quite subtle um yeah so a big one for me was the social side of things I went from being a very sociable person Mm. to being quite reclusive and quite insular um now sociable was a bit of a yes it was a mask and I know it was a mask now but I couldn't I, I lost my ability to mask for quite a long time um and that 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 sort of became quite obvious to a lot of people and that actually instigated quite a lot of you know misunderstanding between peer groups and things like that let's put it that way I was uh, you know I was labeled as being naughty and being x y and z because or not wanting to go to school and being truant because I just I when actually I was really struggling um I think that's the same for I don't think that's just necessarily a male thing but I think that's for everyone but I think another thing for as a man was that yeah, it's a really difficult one. The hormonal changes of one, obviously they're not developing one, is a big one. Um, but also just the, the, the little things like not, it's, yes, for, for me it was like, I, I never got on with people my age. I don't know if that's necessarily a men thing or whatever, but I never got on with people my age and I couldn't get into the the lad sort of stuff. Mm. You know, Um I don't agree with any of that stuff, by the way, but I, I think it's appalling and stupid and all this lag culture and stuff is wrong. But I think there was a there, there was more than one reason that I couldn't get in with that sort of thing, and I could never relate to any of my peers. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, I'm glad I didn't actually, in a way. But um, it, it's it's strange to say it's strange to say that it's a sign, but you, you know what I mean when we've got a when we are where we are at the moment um i think because i could never really fit in with my peers i was always sort of a bit of an outcast i was always trying to fit in but never quite so the only way i could fit in was through sort of being good at school and good at sport and things like that rather than actually being able to talk to people on a personable level which i could never do um so i think that was definitely one for me anyway um and i know that there's you know, people say about the signs of eating disorders is all you you know body size changes and things like that. For me, it wasn't about the body size or anything like that. I the, the signs for me struggling were me becoming more reclusive, me focusing on things to the extent where I was really like just hyper focused on say studying or doing something like that to the expense of everything else, and everything else just went out the window. Um, and my social life went out the window. I wouldn't go out. I wouldn't go for meals. I wouldn't do anything like that. Again, I don't think it's necessarily a male or female thing because I don't think there's, I don't think there's as much difference as people make out there is, and and maybe that's what I've just maybe that maybe by making a mess of talking about it, I've actually you know made a really good point. Yeah, you have. I couldn't. <laughs> there's, 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 there's there's very little overlap. There's very little um, difference. The, 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 there's physical differences because men and women are different physically, yeah. right? There's emotional differences because men are bound by patriarchy and toxic masculinity and all that rubbish right um as i've made a mess of saying before um <laughs> and women are maybe bound a bit more by the diet culture side of things because that sort of it is pushed on women more than um men um i don't know why but it just is um and maybe a bit more by the especially maybe when 
you've got younger women, maybe by the aesthetic side of things, uh, you know, men in a different way to women. But again, it's this, they're still very similar because you still, they've still got the crossovers. So I don't think there is much difference, really. I think we just need to acknowledge that men get eating disorders too. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're so right. Like, um, you know, like you said, medically, there might be a few things that are different and they're, they're good things to recognise. But equally, not everybody has the same medical consequences. Yeah. So it's... <sighs> You can't just say, oh, well, women lose their periods because not every woman does lose their period. Um, So I think, yeah, you've knocked the nail on the head. At the end of the day, everybody experiences an eating disorder differently. But, uh, you know, you and I being different genders could have experienced it in exactly the same way. Um, So I think, yeah, like you said, you've made a great point in that actually maybe the differences aren't that much. Um, and maybe that's the shift we need to kind of realise is that men can experience eating disorders in just the same way that women can. Yeah, exactly that. They may manifest slightly differently, but the underlying issues are still there. And yeah. I think that just needs to be recognised a bit more rather than, you know, stigmatised or, or told that it's a, a female illness because it just isn't. It's a, it encompasses all genders. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think for me, that is one of the the biggest stigmas that we need to just get a hammer and whack it. Um, so, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, I think it's been such a, a brilliant conversation um, and sort of touched on so many different things. Um, what you've been wanting to ask. I have a question from one of the listeners, but just before I ask, I wanted to check. I think when we spoke before, you said that you were diagnosed with atypical anorexia. Was that the case? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've been between atypical anorexia, anorexia, and no eating disorder at all. So yeah, let's go with atypical anorexia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that actually, actually, then the question is quite a, a good one. Um, so somebody has asked, why is atypical anorexia considered a separate illness? Um, I have identical twins, one with anorexia, one with atypical anorexia. There's no difference apart from the weight at the time of their diagnosis. Uh, yeah, two words, weight stigma. That's the answer. <laughs> it is all due to weight stigma. Anorexia, atypical anorexia. I'd even put orthorexia in the bracket. They're all the same illness. They're all anorexia. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they, they exhibit the same ways. You know, I've been diagnosed with anorexia and atypical anorexia. I'm the same person and my illness hasn't changed. It's just been my body weight that's been different. Um, it's a complete and utter ridiculousness. But I think the reason it's used is because it is used to deny certain people treatment in a system that is chronically underfunded. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really hard, isn't it? And I have sat with myself for so long and had so many conversations with people about why is it a different diagnosis and the obvious kind of thing is the weight and like you said I think it comes from the weight stigma um and ultimately you know a, a lot more people have atypical anorexia than anorexia so it's not actually that atypical and I think the terminology just shouts I mean I was diagnosed with atypical anorexia and to me that was just like you had one job and yeah. um yeah. so that personally didn't help but I've sat with myself and thought is it because somebody with anorexia 
it might require more medical support because the medical consequences. But then I've spoken to people like yourself, um, still had severe medical consequences, despite the fact that their weight maybe hasn't been in that low BMI range. So that doesn't make sense. So no. I think you're right in that it is. And then people say, you know, there needs to be a cutoff point, but why? Why does there need to be a cutoff point? It's it's classed as a psychological illness, okay? Not a physical illness. So why are we basing diagnosis on physical criteria? That's my question. Um, I'm I'm still yet to have anyone give me an answer that, let's let's put a, a decent answer to why they're different other than it's different body weights. People said, oh, it's because people with atrial fibrillation don't have a focus on body image or want to lose weight when I don't agree with that either. I couldn't because, disagree more with that. Because a lot of people with normal, I've had normal anorexia, I've had normal anorexia, why do I call it normal anorexia? But you know what I mean? You know, I, I've, I've not wanted to lose weight. I've mm. just been at a different weight to that I am now. I've never wanted to lose weight. It's, but it's, it's a lot, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. And I, I, don't, I, there is no answer other than it's it's weight stigma. I mean, I would say personally for me, and obviously you can't just go off, you know, one mm. anecdotal story, but the main driving factor for my eating disorder was I wanted to be smaller. So if if atypical anorexia isn't about weight, then I don't have atypical anorexia. Well, I didn't have atypical anorexia either. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think what we have determined there is... I think like you say it's weight stigma and almost it would it makes sense to me to just have it as one diagnosis like just have it as atypical anorexia and then if somebody is at a low weight then you can help them to reach a stable weight if somebody's at a quote-unquote healthy BMI but they're struggling with food you can work on them with that and then it would just be bringing in the psychological interventions at a different point maybe somebody with atypical anorexia can start there and then because they're at a bmi where their brain is functioning and they can engage in therapy and somebody with anorexia at a low bmi wouldn't necessarily be able to engage in that so you just you the treatment is just different stages um yeah it's, it's, it's it doesn't seem that difficult and it's like physical illnesses you don't go you've got atypical diabetes <laughs> That's so it's what's you know but everyone's diabetes will be managed differently so why do we do any different with eating disorders everyone's eating disorder will be different but they can still fall within the same diagnosis yeah well we've sorted it out so uh <laughs> we'll, we'll get on we'll get on to what is it would be dsm6 i don't even know if that's gonna be i don't know when that'll be out but <laughs> hopefully we'll get our names in there um thank you so much for joining me adam i've had it's been such a wonderful conversation so yeah really nice to chat to you thank you so much really appreciate it if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and beat for support or talk to someone you trust